Sandos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Oh, good Thursday, or should I say championship Thursday? I don't know if I should say it that way, but I like it. If I didn't get you juiced up, there is a championship game. It will be Saturday. It will be inside the green. It will be ETSU. It will be Mercer. Winner take all. First time in ETSU history. Uh, I didn't do the research on Mercer from the 40s, if it's the first time in their history. But it will be the first time in their Southern Conference history. They will play the last game of the year to determine who will be the automatic qualifier to the FCS playoffs, the true Southern Conference champion. Been a long time since they've had that that wasn't named Wofford. It seems like every other year that it went, uh, they were tied, or someone was tied as ETSU in 2018, in a three-way tie where the Bucks had a chance to be the outright champion, but instead went into a three-way tie. So a lot to talk about on the show. Game preview, Mercer. We will talk Southern Conference football briefly because game's not as interesting this week as the past few weeks, but certainly there are games and for a couple of teams, VMI Chattanooga, looking at you, you have to win if you want any shot of getting in. And then we'll talk to Keith Burke about his breakdown of the playoffs. I have two things for you right at the top of the show. Oh, geez. Firstly, SoCon John is fired up. Tweet just came across the wire about a topic that I believe you'll talk with Keith Brake about a little bit later. Okay. A possible 6-5 and five team in Northern Iowa getting into the FCS playoffs. And I'd imagine that would be over a Southern Conference team. Uh, yes. Keith is a awesome guy. Uh, if you want to hate listen to something as a Southern Conference fan, do it with Keith Brake's interview because it has horrendous <laughs> takes left and right from someone that is a fan of the Southern Conference and defends the Southern Conference and thinks that multiple teams should get in from the Southern Conference. Uh, you will want to make sure to listen to every second because it will get you in a raging um, scene. I set him up for a couple, too. Uh, <laughs> and the, his answers. the level of hate that he and it seems like North Dakota State fans have for the committee when they've won like seven of the last nine national titles or whatever like the elitism at the top is just unbelievable he is a great guy but the interview <laughs> drove me insane drove me insane as someone that does not agree with him on basically anything from around the world of FCS also uh, uh, the Big 12 has barred Texas Tech's football radio broadcaster from calling Saturday's game versus Oklahoma State did you see this story no so they absolutely eviscerated the referees and said the Big 12 does not want Iowa State to lose this game on air. The Big 12 came in and said, nope, can't do it. You're out this Saturday. And I wonder if that is the state that we're in, how Jay Santos is still calling football. I, okay. <laughs> that is brand new. I've not heard this. I've yes, not seen this. I have no prep for this. Uh, I there's a lot, um, golly, uh, okay, I'll Probably say this. for a different you, show, but I just love, I would just say, our this, crew if the, still gets to call games. If the Southern <laughs> That's Conference comes to me, and first of all, Texas Tech is not going to go hungry if they miss a radio broadcast. There is some legitimate ramifications if we can't do a game and lose out on some revenue. Like, that's a different animal, number one. Uh, oh, I believe that Texas Tech can still do it, but those two broadcasters are not allowed. Oh, yeah, I'd have to look. I, if I got, I, I almost wear. I would almost wear that as a badge of honor. I'm not yeah. gonna lie to you. Yeah. I, now I will say this: I am not a fan, and I, I don't know that I ever go so far to accuse the conference of. I've accused the conference of shooting itself in the foot like VMI Furman, and Shokan John probably doesn't like my take on VMI 
got hosed for a touchdown that, and would have given, uh, I think, no doubt a chance for VMI to be an at-large team. And I think that's happened before. I think the 30-4 and four year, ETSU started on the road three of the first four games, Wofford, Furman, and UNCG. Do you not want to try to get multiple teams in the tournament? Like, I've gone to say things like that. I don't know that I would just go flat out someone is cheating or that, but it's a bold move uh, for the Big 12, and I think you do have to, as a league, I think you do have to draw a line in the sand somewhere to say somebody can't show up and do a game. I think they should almost just find the school. And if you find the school enough, the school will go to those two guys and go, hey, look, we're with you. I get it. But if you like your job, shut up and don't say that again. And I'm with that. I think that's what the route they should have gone, to go so far to make a statement to say, guess what? You want to bash the league? You want to say something outlandish? You can't even show up to do your job. I think that's, uh, gosh, I don't know what I would do in Southern Cop or something like that. I had to get those two things out before we talked about, obviously, the much more important things on this Uh, Thursday. SoCon John, I am with you, and Big 12, yikes. That is egregious. Though, saying as a broadcaster, the conference does not want the team that we're playing to lose this game. <laughs> I, I did kind of raise my eyebrows there for a minute, but I, I agree. It's a very odd way to go about handling the situation. I get if uh, we all pull for our teams. We all disagree with stuff. There was the one time, and again, we'll, uh, last quick story, uh, Don Hellman was actually calling the games for the Atlantic Sun when the tournament was in the dome and as don tends to do he hammers officials and this was a game that didn't involve an etsu team and he was just randomly calling down the middle of a game and talked about how awful the officials were and one of the league officials came over and said look we're gonna have to fine him if he doesn't be quiet and he, you know and so i go tell don and don's like well you'll pay the fine i said don buddy you'll just be out of a job <laughs> if you get us fined and he was like why would i get fined i said because the league has a rule about that and the commissioner and social commissioner are sitting next to you as you're hammering that so we have had uh, a possible fine from uh, from Don, who was actually employed by the A-Sun to come in and do the games, but they were going to fine us because he worked with us. So that was an odd thing. All right. Speaking of officials. Yes. I think that they could play a big part in this game on Saturday. Yes. Simply because of where Mercer and ETSU are, if you look at the league rankings in terms of penalties, penalty yardage, this is a Mercer team that is not going to beat themselves in that way. Fewest penalties against the entire league, I should say, the fewest penalties called against them the entire year in the league. 36 for a league low, 297. ETSU second most penalties and most penalty yardage. A couple of other places because I know you're going to hit the big points here in a second on where this game could be decided. I think there are some other outlying factors outside of the two big things, I believe it's going to be, that you're going to talk about. Special teams, can this be Elijah Huzzy's week? Mercer's averaging just 32 yards per punt net. That's worse than the league. And Randy Sanders has harped on, you know, when are we going to get a big punt return? Because big plays like that can change this game and sway it drastically one way because I think big plays will be at a premium. Also, worse than the league in kickoff returns are Mercer. So, again, special teams, they're also just 8 of 14 on field goals, 57%, second to worst in the league. They do have an opportunity in the kickoff game. The Bucks are the only team in the league to give up more than 1,000 kick return yards. In fact, 238 more than anyone else. But, again, Mercer just 18 yards per return. That's not very good. So penalties, special teams, a couple of areas to look at outside of straight down the beaten path, which I believe you'll talk about. And I don't blame you for looking at this in a more simple way, right? We like to break things down and speculate on a number of different angles. But 
this game does appear, regardless of how I want to open this segment and talking about this game, it does appear like it's going to be a couple of things that it will come down to, and if they go one way or the other, that's how the game is going to be decided. If they cancel out, I think that's where my other situations come in. Well, let me ask you this. How many, to say you had a good year special teams and blocking kicks, what would be a total number of block kicks for a year, would you assume? Uh, two, maybe. Okay, four for Mercer. Wow. So, two blocked punts and two blocked field goals. To the special teams point. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that was going to be one of my last points so since you brought it to the forefront. Let me just jump on that because those are game changers and momentum killers and things that don't go as turnovers or other stats. Like a fourth down stop doesn't really go as a turnover. It's just, it's just a turnover on downs, which isn't a turnover, which I still don't see how that doesn't work. But that's an amazing stat that can swing a game. And we saw last year the Chattanooga game was very eerily similar. And I wish I still could go back and watch last year's ETSU Mercer game on, on the ESPN thingy, but they, you know, only up for about 30, 40 days and they uh, pull all of them down. Uh, I would be shocked if you didn't play those a little bit in a mirror fashion to see how the things played out. ETSU did things they hadn't really done all year. The turnovers gave up the big kick return. Defensively, just stymied Mercer. Chattanooga, uncharacteristic five turnovers. Had to make a quarterback change. Um, got hosed on a, a play. I thought they should have been awarded the football on a fumble. Had a block kick. Um, couldn't score in the red zone. It was amazing. The, the weird kick, onside kick, not onside kick, squib thing that happened. I mean, things that Chattanooga hasn't done, a limb forward really getting the ball punched out on a weak effort. There was an interception um, where Copeland got hit and the ball went up and sideways seven yards, like behind him, and a defensive lineman was so out of position that he made the interception. I mean, it was just so many things that happened to both ETSU and Chattanooga. Mercer's been very good on the road, which is kind of shocking when I started to look at different things in the game. And I am going to over simplify this, but there's a reason. You look at on the road for Mercer in the three Southern Cups. So take Alabama out, if that's fair. They are plus seven in the turnovers. They forced ten turnovers on the road in three Southern Conference games. They're not particularly great at forcing turnovers, which is what's odd is they're plus one for the season, and that includes, or plus three or whatever it is, but that includes being plus four last week. So, in the big games, they have forced turnovers. We know ETSU pretty good at forcing turnovers, and they're pretty good at not turning it over. ETSU leads the league in just nine giveaways. They've only given up the football nine times. So, that's a stat that I think if Mercer were to come in and create turnovers, like they did, you know, at Furman, for an example, um, then I think it's going to be a little bit of a long day in Green Stadium for ETSU. Now, that other thing I would say is running the football. We just saw ETSU run for like a 1,000 billion yards, and we've got more stats on that. Maybe we'll get to today. Maybe I'll just get to it during the broadcast. But there's a lot of rushing implications. Mercer's ran for 223 yards, at least, I should say, 223 yards on the road, which is funny because they're only averaging about 160, taking point out, they're only averaging about 160 at home, which, again, is a crazy stat. Normally, you would assume you could run the football better at home. You would assume you would create more turnovers at home. 
They're the opposite. They've been very good on the road at both those. We know ETSU is very good when they're able to outrush their opponents, and they're very good when they're able to force more turnovers. Mercer, 6-0 and when outrushing their opponents, and 5-0 and when they win the turnover battle or if they are tied in the turnover battle. So I'm going to just start with the probably oversimplification of whoever wins and can control the ground game, who can control time of possession. Mercer's only lost time of possession twice all season. Once was VMI, where they just got boat raced. And the other one was the Citadel, and where the Citadel had a lot of time of possession, but some turnovers flipped the field and some other things where Mercer scored quickly and just didn't really need the football. So kind of a blowout win, blowout loss. They've lost time of possession, but even Alabama, even some of these other teams, they won time of possession. So that could be something that kind of plays into the effect, but I think it's just going to be a ground game. Who can grind it out, control the ball, and not make the mistakes and turn it over? That's going to be my very, very oversimplification of the game of football to say those two things are going to be my two big keys for the game against the Mercer Bears. And it may not be an oversimplification. It could absolutely come down to those two things. I think to the trained or untrained eye, that's what you come away from when looking at this matchup. If it does come down to QB play, Tyler Rydell, I want to just kind of give a summation of his year. Against Chattanooga, ETSU's only loss this season, he was the better quarterback. I know that may get lost in the loss because he had the turnovers and he was just beat had up a rough the whole start. Day. Yeah, had a rough start and beat up the whole day by really just Devon Maxwell. Um, but he was the better quarterback that day over Cole Copeland, who threw for like 82 yards in a pick. He was the better QB in every non-conference game. If you go back and look at those game by game, as I did, Wofford, Citadel, Chattanooga, Furman. I'm on the fence, so give him six in the plus column, the non-conference, and Wofford, Citadel, Chattanooga. Furman, I'm on the fence. Same with VMI. Definitely was not against Sanford and Western, and that is more predicated based on system, right? And it's funny because those are ETSU's two best offensive performances of the year in terms of points and, I believe, in terms of yards. So it almost does give you an indirect signal of, well, maybe we should rely on that run game even more, even more heavy in the big games that you need to win um, not that we didn't really know that already, and not that we haven't seen Randy Sanders do that like he did last week against Western Carolina when he ran at 29 of 34 plays in the second half. But I think he will be the better quarterback again on Saturday. That doesn't necessarily guarantee victory. As we talked about, he was better than Cole Copeland in the ETSU lost to Chattanooga. Mercer doesn't need a lot from their quarterback. Fred Payton hasn't delivered a lot in a lot of the games that Mercer has played and Mercer has won. Now, Drew Kronick, when I talked to him, he said, I think he's been a lot better than he has been um, over previous years here, and I think he's been good more often than he's been bad this season. Now, of course, he's going to say that about his quarterback, right? When they've needed him to just do the little tiny things, he has executed them a lot of the time. Now, when he gets off to bad starts, things can kind of snowball. We saw that against VMI. When Fred Payton throws for 100 yards or more, in league play, they're 6-0. and Just 100. And the one day that he didn't was VMI. So I'm not sure that that stat is going to hold true, right? I think that Mercer is going to have to throw the ball to some level of success. And Peyton's about you know 50 to 55%, it seems like, every single week. He's not going to 
complete a ton of passes, not going to be highly efficient. He's usually, you know, what, 10 to 20, 12 to 25, something along those lines. 100 or more, 6 and 0. I think ETSU is probably going to throw for about double the yardage that Mercer does, and they're going to force ETSU to be balanced to an extent as well. If it comes down to quarterback play, I favor ETSU because while Tyler Edel has had a rough couple of weeks, and really last week he was just, would you say wildly off target? There were some throws there that could be made. He didn't make them. Yes, yes. I think there were open receivers that he short hopped a couple, overshot one. And here's what I would, not to, and I'll let you jump back in if you want to jump back in, but if not, I got more on his stats. Um, Not on the same page. Yeah. On the, the two, last two games, the first down series, we've seen the receivers and the quarterback not on the same page where either somebody breaks a route off short and it's thrown long or it's thrown short and they kept running the go route or whatever the route was. And I, that's a little – especially when you're talking about you scripted plays. Right. And I, I get it. They're option routes, right? Coach talks about it all the time. What what do you see the defense? But whatever there – and I'll talk to Coach Sanders about it, and, and, and I can't wait to talk to Matt Wilgham about this because Wilgham is always the uh, – it's always a quarterback fault. And I actually said, hey, you know, when I'm bringing this up to Matt in the booth, you know, he's going to tell me it's the quarterback was right and she was wrong because he's throwing the ball. He goes, well, let me go ahead. As a guy that played quarterback, coach quarterback, has maybe knows something about quarterbacking, the quarterback made the mistake every time. Hmm. I said, oh, well, I don't know if Matt Williams is going to be happy about that, but we will we will get that memo out. Um, and real quick, and I'll just jump back in. Have you, Rodell and his accuracy, first down, uh, first down passing, okay, in the first seven games on first down passing, Rydell was 44 of 69, 64%. That's good. That's including taking some deep shots in some games, right? The last three games, he's 11 of 24, 46%, and last game specifically, 1 of 7 for 10 yards. Wow. Not good. And as we know with Coach Sanders, he is smart enough to see how one thing leads to another, right? You get nothing on first down, then you're in second and long, and your goal is if it gets to third down, you got to be third and short. ETSU is still 62.5% when it's six yards or less. Which is incredible. Unbelie- best in a long time in the history of the school. So you want to make third and six or less and stay away from, obviously, the third and longs, and things snowball when you don't get those first down yards. My only other thing on Tyler Rydell is – while he may be the better quarterback on the field on Saturday, what may ultimately, and this plays into your point earlier, only really matter in the passing game is not making the big mistakes. And if he's able to stay away from that, like he has most of the year, with Chattanooga probably being the one exception, and that also lends itself to your point of turnovers really deciding games and really deciding ETSU's season so far. They've taken care of it phenomenally for most of the year, and the one game they really didn't was Chattanooga. Um, Don't do out-of-character things. And if you have to eat some sacks, then do that. But don't flail the ball out to your side. Don't get it knocked out. Don't try and be a hero. And it's easy to do that, especially for young players in championship games. They can try and do too much, and that can cost their team dearly. The last few games, Sanf- uh, Sanford, <laughs> Mercer has been good at strip sacks, causing the fumble while sacking the quarterback as quarterbacks are not secure with the football, so I think he needs to do that. Let me say this, too. The positive that Coach talked about Rydell, because he did address sort of Tyler not being very good on first down, him 
you know, just not being on the same page with receivers being his fault. He also said those guys don't run for 200 yards apiece if he doesn't check out of certain runs and get them into the right run play. And there were several times where Rodell had to check into a different run. And so Holmes and Sailors don't have the big day if Tyler Rydell isn't still in sync in what the offense is trying to accomplish, other than a couple throws in the first quarter of EMI and one throw against West Carolina where he had the wrong read. Other than that, he's had the right reads. He's seen the field right. He just hasn't made the throws. To me, that's correctable if he's seen everything correctly. He's just not making the throws. The other part of it is if he's still in sync with offense enough to get ETSU in the right numbers game in the run game, and I think this game's going to come down to the run, I think if he is flawless in that, that's just as important as him throwing the ball in first down because that means ETSU's going to have numbers or going to get positive yardage, and that's going to make his chance when he does throw the football a little bit more. And I'll say this, in the biggest third down of the game, ETSU up seven, ball inside their 10 they need five yards for a first down and he throws it exactly five yards on a frozen rope on an out pattern where will huzzy was covered up and it was the only throw he threw on the drive but if that's incomplete bucks are kicking out of their own end zone up seven he makes that throw and then etsu just rammed and you could feel the deflation of western carolina and etsu just rammed it down their throat the rest of that drive and went up two scores at that point so even though he has not been accurate and he's not been as good the last couple games as we've seen the beginning of the season, he is still doing things that is winning football that are subtle things that people aren't going to pick up on. It's just the, hey, he threw that out route and he shorted it, right? And But I will say he's only been real loose with the football in that Chattanooga game. And the result of that, as you've mentioned, was the loss. So if he can keep the ball security, get him in the right run, Make enough throws. You know, we've only seen Rydell been asked to win two games. And guess what? In the fourth quarter, he's been able to do that. But it doesn't look like this is a situation right now with a young quarterback that they're going to just hand him the ball from the first quarter and say, go win it. And also, I'd like to point out, why would you? Sailor and Holmes are about to accomplish some ridiculous feats. My favorite stat that I've told everyone, and I think I don't know – I've checked just ETSU. I've tried to check some Southern Conference record books. Two running backs playing at the same time, overlapping none, or overlapping the whole time, to get 10,000 all-purpose yards between them is incredible. You're talking about the kick return, the pass receiving, the rushing. You look at Quay Holmes' fifth all-time, all-purpose yards himself. He's about to get to 6,000. They're about to be dual 1,000-yard rushers which will be the 12th time in Southern Conference history it's happened. First time it would have happened since 2015. This is just the second time last week that both guys ran for 200 yards on the same team. Second time Southern Conference history, which is almost laughable. Georgia Southern did it in 2007. You would think with all the Georgia Southern teams, the three-back teams, the run-heavy Furman teams of the you know uh, late 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, early 90s, that somewhere along the line that, that would have happened more often, but it hasn't. But Sailors need 68 yards for 1,000. Quay Holmes has two records he can crush. The single season, rushing mark, 26 yards, 86 yards from the all-time. They'll have two games. They'll both get there. And I know they'll both not care at that point in time. They just want to get the win. 
But last week, the Bucks averaged 10.3 yards per carry on first down. Now, Mercer's defense is the second-best run defense in the league. They've actually surpassed ETSU as far as run defense goes. They are third-best overall on – actually, I think they're second total team defense. They are second rush defense and third against the pass. ETSU is third just behind Mercer in the other two categories and then flip them on the pass defense. They are second. The other thing I would point out, Mike Gallagher, is the game you could simplify it to inside the 20s. Red zone. ETSU, one of the best teams in the red zone in finishing with touchdowns. Mercer, not very good at stopping people in the red zone. 22 of 26. Four field goal miss. Three were missed just by the opposing kicker just missing it, like Chattanooga last week. They did block one. So I'm going to give them credit for one stop, true stop, out of 26 trips in the red zone. They got lucky three times and missed field goals. Everybody, all the other times, they've given up points. So I think that could be something different. Now, Mercer is leading the league and not letting teams in the red zone. So they are stingy letting people get in the red zone. Now, they've played one less game, but still they've played Alabama and some other folks. So 26 trips in the red zone is a good number. If ETSU can get in the red zone, it could come down to that. Can ETSU continue to do what they've been doing, which is punch it in, and can Mercer hold them out? And on the flip side, ETSU's the best red zone defense. Mercer's kind of middle of the pack red zone offense. And they turned it over last week, threw into quadruple coverage. When I saw the throw, I thought, hmm, that ball got tapped or something else. And then they show the end zone look of the throw. And I'm like, nope, that's exactly where he was throwing the ball. It was a clean throw. He just apparently didn't see four guys in a white jersey. And so we know if you're going to be loose with the football in the red zone, there's not a better team in America. And maybe, I mean, in 10 years I might be a good team that has taken the football away in the red zone as ETSU. People often say it's not how you start, it's how you finish. I think in sports it can be a little bit of both, right? In the middle important too, but really if you can set the tone early and be strong late, I think you've put yourself in a tremendous position to win the game. ETSU has done both of those this year. Bucks are plus 49 in the first quarter. They've jumped out to leads. But no one in the Southern Conference is better than Mercer in the fourth. They're plus 58, allowing just 27 fourth quarter points. Now, Mercer has to be in the game for that to matter. And if there's one thing that, outside of the VMI game, right, and again, I think that much like the Chattanooga game, and you keep referencing this, and I think you're saying it without saying it, that really every possible thing had to go right for Mercer to win that game. And it just so happened to. I mean, an incredible amount of things. Now, it's not to take away from their effort. Defensively, they were spectacular. And you have to give a defense their kudos when there's five turnovers, right? Absolutely have to. So not taking anything away from Mercer, but that was a unique set of circumstances. VMI game. Also, very unique set of circumstances. If the Bucks can get up 14 nothing in the first two minutes like VMI did, the game's over, much like the VMI one was. Now, more likely, Mercer is going to be able to do some quality things on the defensive side, do enough offensively to be in it going to the fourth quarter. So to allow just 27 fourth-quarter points, that's a pretty minuscule number. But ETSU is plus 56 in the fourth quarter, very close behind. They've scored 95 Fourth quarter points. Of course, the 24 against Stanford helped. The 14 last week against Western Carolina helped. But regardless, we're talking on the totality of the season. 
these teams both phenomenal in the fourth quarter. And if it comes down to the fourth quarter, the battle for those final 15 minutes for a Southern Conference championship and for an FCS automatic playoff berth is going to be a joy to watch, without a doubt. And this could very well be the biggest game in Mercer's program's history. Remember, they didn't have football, as you said, for over 70 years. Back in 2013, they played Marist with a 5-1 and league mark towards the tail end of their first season back in the Pioneer League in the second-to-last week of the season with a chance to be in championship position going to the final week. They lost 33-7. to I think before this season, that was probably their biggest game. And then I think last week was probably their biggest game. And the only thing that's bigger than last week is now this week. And I'll be interested to see how both teams respond of psychologically and mindset going in as they have been in this exact situation before. It will be a ruckus crowd. ETSU was in that situation 2018. There was a little bit, it was so odd last year because you know if ETSU won against Mercer last year that they were going to be in the playoffs and the way it worked out, they probably still would have lost the championship like a half game because of the weird just schedule, and so there was a little bit Thanks, of the game, um, and Walker. There was a game last year that was semi the same. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it was still somewhat the same. And ETSU obviously didn't fare well, and it was a lot of defensive players. Don Hellman's told the story a couple times about running into Billy Taylor, and how many guys going to lose on defense? And well, none. All of them. Are have a bad taste in their mouth. They felt like they should have won the conference championship last year. They felt like they got something special. They're coming back to win a championship. The 10,000-plus that will be in Green Stadium will be ready to roll. Mercer has bought an extra 300 tickets, bringing some students. They will be ready to roll. The atmosphere will be electric, and the trophy's going to be in the house. The commission's going to be in the house. Everything that sets you up for that. Mercer has probably not played on the road. Now, I know they played Furman, and Furman listed somehow 11,000 people at that game. I'm just going to call shenanigans. I know Western Carolina listed 10,000-plus for Mercer on the road when they were there. I'm just going to call shenanigans. And somehow the Citadel had 10,000 people down there. And I don't know where all these people are coming from that are going to these Mercer games and on there's the road. A, And there's a little bit of exaggeration really across collegiate athletics and just athletics in general, I think, with attendance. But there is exaggeration within reason. And then there's looking at the stands and seeing five to 7,000 and people saying it's five digits. Come when on, you look at Furman Stadium and they hear the 10,000 and I look out and they have a pretty big stadium, but the homes, there's I'm not seeing 10,000 in there yet. The Citadel VMI 12,000 was legit and probably undersold because I watched that game, and that was incredible. That was an unbelievable crowd. It was the biggest and best crowd of the Southern Conference year, and those are rivals, and there's a lot riding on the line there, right? They've had tradition of playing each other for a trophy and a bunch of other things. So that one's legit. Western's crowds tend to be better in football than basketball. They tend to be better for a few special events. Um, but, again, looking at that crowd, I, I just don't see that happening. So I think this would be the best environment that Mercer has gone to, and we'll see if the crowd continues to play a factor in which they have, I believe, so far this season. And so um, I'm excited. I think this is a long time coming for the people that wanted football back. This is why they wanted it back, the people that wanted it outdoors. 
it's going to luck up into a 55-degree and mostly sunny day. Playoff implications, right? You're talking about Randy Sanders would have, and they're in, let's be honest, ETSU's in the playoffs. But 2018 and 2021, right? Three of his, or two of his first four years, and he had a shot in 2020. Only 2019, or I guess spring 2021, which was the 2020 season. Only 2019. You're talking about three almost championship, you know, one championship for sure, because he had the co-champion 18. Chance at a championship this year. Was fighting for a championship 2020, just 2019, won a little bit of a ride. But you're talking about what Randy Sanders has done in four years. And then you talk about Drew Cronick. How outstanding was his turnaround for Bobby Lamb and his last, you know, 12, 14 games and the stat that I don't know off the top of my head that you know. Yeah. Um, just what he's been able to do in two years and get them to a championship contender. And it is, and this is what hurts the Southern Conference, because nationally, and we're going to talk Keith Brake later, which Mike Gallagher, I'll let him have a, a rebuttal at the end of the interview, and he can give me all the things that, and I've got a few things I'll disagree with Keith on too. But 10 years ago, I mean, let's be honest, and, that, and that's what's hurting the Southern Conference is to other people across the country, it sounds like two made-up schools playing in a conference for a championship. In football, that's exactly what it sounds like, and it's hard to get people to understand, well, these are two pretty good teams because everywhere else across the country, they don't know. They don't pay attention. And other than the few of us that stay up late at night and watch Big Sky games, I'll be honest, if I named a couple of the Big Sky teams, you would think they're made up too and not very good and wouldn't have any idea about it. So it's fair to, to say some of that, but to get the committee to sort of come to an agreement, and the ultimate thing is is – the Southern Conference needs to get more teams in, and they need to win. And if the Southern Conference only gets one in, and it's ETSU, it's gonna, I mean, I'm happy it's ETSU, not going to lie, but makes a little bit of a travesty. The other thing is, if they get in, and let's say they do pull off the miracle and Chattanooga VMI get in, and they both lose, then the next year it's not going to do the Southern Conference any favors. You have to have a little bit of tradition of winning games, and that's how these teams are able to get in. You make a good point on the head coaching battle. Coach Sanders, really three chances at a championship in his four seasons here. Locked up one of them. This game last season cost the Bucks a playoff berth. Three chances at a championship in four years. Five years of head coaching for Drew Cronick. And in his three stops going into this year, three championships, a 59-14 and 14 overall head coaching record. And you're right. I mean, Mercer, when I got here, was right about what ETSU was. Funny enough, like 2017, you know, a team that was trying to find themselves. They had a really good first year and then kind of receded in terms of their results. And, and both have risen to the occasion at about the same rate. Maybe ETSU got there a little bit more quickly than Mercer did because Drew Cronick didn't arrive till a couple of years after the Bucks made that 2018 championship game, quote-unquote, against Sanford, and uh, then went on to the FCS playoffs, ultimately narrowly losing to Jacksonville State. But here we are, you know, less than a decade into these two programs being back. Two great head coaches, two really quality teams, and two teams that could get in the playoffs if Mercer wins. Mercer probably out if ETSU wins, and I'm going to hold – 
the rest of my thoughts on anything playoff related and also anything on Keith Bray. Had to I, say can't wait. Clearly I can't wait. I can't wait. We're going to have a t- at least a 10 minute, 15 minute segment after that. So I can't I wait. Maybe I'm more. not talk about any more of my thoughts. I think I made myself quite clear at the beginning of this. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll do a quick uh, Southern Conference run through. That won't be that long because honestly, I don't have a lot to say about a lot of the games. Uh, we'll do that. Keith Break after that. Bold predictions after that. All that more coming up. Santa Sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. sort things out just a little bit before we get to you and Keith Brake in your conversation regarding playoff scenarios and such. He brings a different perspective, let's just say, than we have here on Sandoz to the sidekick, which is good. We need to hear from all sides to really get a full picture of how things look around the country and how things are perceived in different areas that have different backgrounds and such. Chattanooga at the Citadel. I think I'm in the heavy minority in saying that I think it's winning in for Chattanooga. Heavy minority. Bulldogs showed signs of life offensively last week, granted against an absolutely tragically bad Wofford defense. Those 45 points they scored tied for their most of the season. For the Citadel, scored 45 against North Greenville as well. The win broke a five-game losing streak, but it doesn't seem to me that the Bulldogs are up to the task of hanging with anyone in the SoCon outside of the Terriers, specifically not a Chattanooga team that obviously had a rough week against Mercer, but the Stars seemed to align for them to not win that game. A set of plays I'm not sure I've ever seen line up against a team in that same way. I would imagine with how one-dimensional the Citadel offense is that the Mocs won't have much of a problem defensively, specifically with the defense and that run that they're on. It's really unbelievable. They haven't allowed more than 200 yards of total offense to opponents in the last four games. 200, 151, 136, and then 163. They're allowing 50 less yards per game than anyone else in the Southern Conference. I do wonder, should they win and then subsequently get into the FCS playoffs, if that does indeed result from the win if their offense is going to be enough to compete nationally. We talked preseason about the final piece, and you know, of course, I had to bring this up on the last time we're going to talk Southern Conference football as a whole. Talked about Robert Riddle at quarterback. We have not seen him. It's been Cole Copeland and Drayton Arnold, who we knew were probably going to be what they've been, and the offense has been run-heavy, lacks variety, and without a boost at quarterback, that, again, I thought could have been Riddle, and all indications are that he has been practicing but has not gotten that chance. Without that, they do seem to lack what would be needed to go on and win an FCS playoff game, though the defense is dynamic. Defense would keep them in it. It certainly would be a problem because at some point they would have to score. And they can't turn it over. And they've been very good at not turning it over. They were actually, I think, tied with JMU for the nation's lead for turnover margin going into that game against Mercer. I think they were both plus 11 going into the game. So, and they're still plus seven. They've had one outlier. So, if they can just kind of corral that, and I feel bad for the Citadel because I feel like Chattanooga is going to take out a bunch of frustration out of them. I agree. 
VMI at Western Carolina. You think VMI is still alive and with a win could get into the FCS playoffs. I tend to think they're out regardless. With the outside shot that if ETSU wins over Mercer, they could sneak in as the third team out of the league with ETSU and Chattanooga as the top two. That's probably the scenario I'm least confident in the league getting three, though. The scenario I'm most confident in getting three is Mercer wins, Chattanooga wins, and I think VMI is then the fourth team. ETSU obviously in as well, but Clearly, I will be laughed at for that take by those that are not in the Southern Conference region. They think that there's only the possibility of getting two at most. First, though, VMI has to win. That is the big task in front of them, and it won't be as easy as it may appear. I think we're in agreement here that the Bucks did the Keydets a favor last week in knocking Western down a few notches, but I'm not sure their confidence will be completely shattered after putting up 35 in the first half against a strong ETSU defense. I'm thinking we could get like 800 passing yards in this game. If you're the impartial observer, don't really care about either team, just love passing, this is probably the game for you this week. Doesn't seem to matter who the receivers are for VMI. No Jacob Harris or Leroy Thomas last week. Max Brimajan and Aiden Twomley were just fine filling in. Twomley had four catches for three yards entering that game, six catches for 89 yards against Furman. Brimajan, a career-high 136, and Michael Jackson had 177 and three touchdowns. I think it would be wise for Kerwin Bell to find some motivation for his men in this one. Four in a row, there would have been built-in motivation. Lose your second-to-last game of the year and not in playoff contention. I think even if it isn't true that if Bell says, look, these guys have a chance at the FCS playoffs, you're pissed about your season ending, go take somebody with you. Could this game get to 100 combined points? Yes. I think so, too. I think if you had no dog in the fight and just wanted something to veg out on and get some popcorn and watch it, that would be the game. Uh, Non-championship games with Kennesaw State, Monmouth, ETSU, Mercer was standing. A game you really just could care less about, you want to be entertained. I have a feeling you're pretty close in the passing yards. I think I'm pretty close, and it's going to be 56-54. There's probably going to be 20 plays of 25 yards or more in this game. It's going to be highly entertaining, and VMI really needs to pick up a win. I'll be curious to see if Western Carolina, if they can sort of circle the wagons. This game will be highly entertaining, and I think this will come down to a last-second type play. Either somebody needs to score to win or vice versa, get a stop to win. And then the game that no one really cares about, Furman and Sanford. I'll say this for it. One team will finish at 500 in the league. The other will finish below 500. I guess there's some merit there in having something to play for if it's only built up in people's heads. It's for the fifth spot in the conference, so you technically wouldn't finish in the bottom half of the league. Little stuff like that. And 3-5 and five does look a heck of a lot different than 4-4. Four and Well, four. I do have one question about that game. Though. What's that? Will Jace Wilson start again? Oh, has he played four games? Is that what you're going after? That- yeah, I don't know. Oh, That's what I think. I'll double-check that, but that would be my only uh, uh, contribution to your comments. I guess I'm pretty <laughs> skeptical about any of these things really mattering. Four and four versus three and five and fifth versus six. I, I know it can help in maybe recruiting, and if you're in talks for a contract extension, if you're a coach, say, hey, look, we've never finished in the bottom of the le- bottom half of the league, and we've always been 500 or blah, 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 blah. I get those things are helpful. And you and me are stat guys, right? Like, we, we appreciate the fact that you can find value in numbers – but, I mean, of all the games this week, there are no playoff implications here, even for the most optimistic of Southern Conference fans. I, I just am not really interested in it. He's over the four games, and that's all I care okay. about. So, yes, he'll probably start. Okay. And, and I guess will he throw against a very terrible defense for 250 yards for the second week in a row? I just I don't. It doesn't matter. 
I, I, <laughs> I just I agree. I know you're playing. I know you're playing to our fervent fan base, which is good. You're doing a good job of keeping them around. I'm hoping at least. Maybe my negativity has already driven them away. I'm not sure. Well, they love to see if you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> All right. That's our uh, that's our breakdown. Shockingly, the breakdown will be after this timeout on Santa Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Standard version. I know you like this one. I do. Why did I cut out? When I, I don't know. I, don't I think know. this is Good. fire, man. Yeah, here we go. It is championship weekend. ETSU Mercer. We're going to talk a little ETSU basketball. That'll be short uh, conversation just because we're running out of podcast time. But got a chance to talk to Keith Brake for the ETSU Coaches Show on playoff scenarios. And, stuff. and again, I've... Just quick brief on Keith. Keith, if you've been around the network for 10, 12 years, you would know Keith Brake. He worked for us for four or five years, did a lot of play-by-play stuff for us, back-end studio work. He is very meticulous. He has no life. He admits he has no life. He creates spreadsheets and things and watches games. He, I know this. If I text him about a random game or he texts me about a random game in the middle of the night, we are both watching the same game, and we think a lot alike. Now, that being said, he covers – two different distinct conferences that are different than the football conferences that we kind of cover. And generally, we're one with the Southern Conference, and yes, we do pay attention OVC, Big South, and some other ones, but for the most part, we're SoCon heavy. Where he's located directly in Fargo and works you know, with North Dakota State and covers them and does their play-by-play women's basketball, baseball, amongst some pre- and post-game show duties for football and men's basketball, He's very locked into not just North Dakota State, but Missouri Valley and Big Sky. Now, that being said, because he lives and breathes that every day, he is going to be a little bit more skewed towards that. And when you cover a team that wins a lot of national championships, certainly you have the Alabama factor of where you somehow are always disrespected, even if people give you the number one overall seed when you don't even win your own conference many years ago, but you seem to forget that they've done that for you. So Keith has a little amnesia. And uh, I'm going to run the full about 11-minute interview because it is interesting. We do talk Southern Conference. We do talk seating. We do talk um, teams getting in. And then I'm going to let uh, Mike have just an open mic to let his thoughts flow after this. So here's me and Keith. Former Buccaneer Sports Network employee and now runs his own call-in radio show, The Breakdown. That's on Bison 1660 in Fargo, North Dakota. Good friend of mine. And Keith certainly um, – over the past few years, you've been asking me the questions. I finally get a chance to turn around and ask you some today. <laughs> yeah, no, hey, man, I, I love it. I, I love, you know, getting on the phone and talking to people. I got a, a weekly radio hit in uh, Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, uh, and uh, I used to have one uh, with a guy out in Kalispell, Montana, talking Big Sky, Bobcats, Grizz, all that stuff. And So great to come on with you, talk a little bison, talk a little playoff picture. Uh, well, a lot of playoff picture because it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the final week of the regular season. 
Well, Keith, the one thing I always enjoyed when you were a student working here at ETSU and then obviously maturing into your own career is the fact that we're very meticulous in some of our spreadsheets and keeping up with everything around and playoff scenarios and just kind of dive into that type. So we trade notes all the time. And so other than the national writers, which, um, you know, I just don't get those guys on enough. I probably need to do a better job of getting, you know, Sam and Brian and some of those guys that cover it on more. That being said, besides those guys, I believe me and you come up with pretty good comprehensive lists. So I want to start with your list. Who do you think are going to get, as of right now, not knowing any results, the top eight seeds, and then who is on the outside looking in but could land one of those seeds? Well, if I'm looking at the top eight, uh, I think the top three are some combination of Sam Houston, North Dakota State, and Montana State. Sam Houston, you don't put a ton of scrutiny on a resume where a team wins every game, right? It's it's when they lose one, you start to kind of take, you go back and say, okay, what happened here, what they do here, what they do there. And if you did that with Sam Houston, I think you'd find some teams that aren't that strong on their schedule, but... They're going to be in that conversation uh, regardless. Uh, Montana State doesn't have an FCS loss yet. They're playing a big sky schedule. They got a nice win at Eastern Washington uh, last week, and now they're going to the brawl uh, against Montana in Missoula. You win that game, you have cleared the path. You have done, in the words of Dan Patrick and Kenny Mann, you've done all the damage you can do uh, in, in the sense of getting yourself in that position. And North Dakota State has a chance to win the Missouri Valley Football Conference outright for the sixth time in 11 seasons. And uh, they're, they're, I, everybody's expecting them to be able to do that uh, against the South Dakota team that beat South Dakota State on a Hail Mary. So there's your top three. For me, four and five are the CAA teams, James Madison and Villanova. And the rest of the CAA is rough enough, Jay, that those might be the only two teams from that conference that get in. Six, seven, eight is where it gets interesting. Eastern Washington is obviously a team that, that you would think belongs there. You might also say UC Davis, Sacramento State, uh, who has a chance to win the Big Sky outright as they beat Davis and Montana State loses. Uh, you following me on all of this so far? It's a little convoluted, but Southern Illinois, Missouri State out of the Valley, I think have a shot at a seed if things play out a certain way. They are both rooting for East Tennessee State to lose this week to Mercer to increase their chances of getting the eighth seed. I think the Buccaneers are squarely in the mix for a seed and a first-round bye where they won't have to play that that dreaded Thanksgiving weekend home game. Let me ask you this before we move on. North Dakota State, if they somehow weren't in, and I'm not saying they won't be, I have them in the top three. If somehow they weren't in the top three, what type of riot would happen? Um, I think it would just reinforce a lot of people's priors about the committee. There is not a, a um, favorable view of the selection process in Fargo, North Dakota. The same is true, I think, in a lot of the, the teams or a lot of the areas, a lot of the fan bases that are currently reclassifying to FBS. And uh, you wonder how much of that is shared by their administration, um, how much of it is just animosity toward their conference mates like James Madison is. Uh, but there is, uh, it would reinforce a lot of priors for a lot of people if North Dakota State didn't end up uh, in the top three. Um, some people probably feel that way if they didn't end up either the one or the two. Uh, but uh, ultimately, I think North Dakota State, if everybody wins this week, has to be at least the third seed and should probably be the top one of the top two. I talked to Brian McLaughlin um, yesterday on my show, and I asked him if Montana State wins in Bozeman, 
and North Dakota State wins big over South Dakota this week. Is there a scenario where they're the one and the two and Sam Houston is the three? And he said, yes, absolutely. He thinks so. So uh, there's there's no consensus on the outside. Um, and it's tough to know a consensus on the inside when we don't really know the metrics that the committee uses until after the fact. They don't publish strength of schedule. They don't publish the simple rating system until after the selection process is done. So we can't get a real vibe on where exactly the committee is going to go because we don't see the information that they see. We have to rely on unofficial things like the Massey ratings or the Saturn ratings, um, and those are calculated by different formulas. Let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned already, teams you know pulling for against ETSU because there's two different groups. For Kennesaw State and ETSU, if you're looking for a seed, you want those teams to lose. And I don't think Kennesaw State's going to get a seed, but it certainly would help people's arguments just in case they were on the bubble. On the flip side of that, if you're a bubble team, you want Kennesaw State and ETSU to win just to try to help your case get in because Monmouth and Mercer, my belief, won't get in if they lose. I completely agree with that. I, any team that loses at home by 30 to Holy Cross, that's a red flag for me on, on your on your bubble resume. So Monmouth is kind of dicey. Um, then you look at uh, Mercer. They don't have a non-conference one. They only play 10 games. Their non-conference schedule is a non-counter, so you throw that one out against Point and Alabama, and they didn't beat Alabama. If they did beat Alabama, we're talking about them for a top eight seed and ETSU for a top eight seed because, holy cow, that's legit. But they didn't do that naturally, and they're not going to do that. Their entire resume is based upon the bona fides of, of their, their conference opponents. And the SOCON isn't quite what it was seven, eight years ago when App State and Georgia Southern were the teams you had to go through to get to the top of this conference. It's a little bit more of a it's a 50-50 ball. It's a jump ball. There's a lot of teams that are close together. Nobody really separates themselves until you get to the end of the year. I mean, you look at it. How many games has ETSU won, had decided, not even won, but just had decided by seven points or fewer over the last three years? It's a ton. So all these teams are really close together. It's difficult to separate them. It's difficult to say that one is dramatically better than the other. So if your only uh, resume is based on what you did in the SOCON, it's tough for me to see that team getting in. But you're right. There are a lot of teams rooting for ETSU, rooting for Kennesaw State. Uh, I think um, you know my, the, the teams that are among them are probably Northern Iowa, William & Mary, Rhode Island, those are teams that are really dicey to get in. Chattanooga might even have to swallow its pride and, and root for ETSU because that might be their shot uh, of getting in to the playoffs as well. And then on the other side, all the teams that are fighting for those six, seven, and eight seeds, they don't want to see ETSU put up a big number on Saturday. Yeah, I think that's the, the one thing. I'm going to stick with SoCon. I was going to ask you that last, but you've kind of touched on it. Bad week for the SoCon last week with Chattanooga losing to Mercer, setting up this title game Saturday in Johnson City. VMI, tough loss at Furman, where it looked like Southern Conference might have a shot at three in. Probably best-case scenario is two, whether that be Mercer win, ETSU then gets the at-large, or ETSU wins, and then seeing if Chattanooga or VMI, if they both win, and they should, they're playing a, a little bit less competition in the Citadel and Western Carolina. I guess my question, if it comes down to Chattanooga and VMI, even though VMI's beat Chattanooga head-to-head, 
Chattanooga is clearly the better team. I'm curious to see what the committee would do if they let one other SOCON team in, how they would determine between Chattanooga and VMI. I think it's the difference between eight and three and seven and four, right? Because VMI, they've lost. What, what are, are they eight and three right now, or eight, uh, seven and three right now? I, I haven't even looked at them. I they, looked at Chattanooga. Uh, uh, actually, I think VMI. Yeah, they would have the same exact record, but VMI would have one okay. more conference loss. Right, VMI would have one more conference loss. Um, Austin P would have that ten, or rather, Chattanooga would have that ten point loss to Austin P at the beginning of the year, which doesn't look great. You know, at the beginning of the season, we thought, ah, okay, you know, Austin P, pretty good team, OVC, and they just cratered. And UT Martin is the team that has risen above and already claimed the automatic bid in the OVC with a week to spare. Um, I, I don't really think either team has a super strong at-large resume. I mean, what is your standout win? DMI's standout win is over Chattanooga. Chattanooga's standout win is over ETSU. Okay, well, great. Now, what else you got? Because Northern Iowa has wins over three teams that are probably going to be in the playoff field. Rhode Island has an FBS win. Uh, William & Mary has a win over a potential seed in Villanova, a likely seed in Villanova. So there, you've got to have a little bit more than what Chet has, I think, to separate them from the miasma of the, the bubble and, and to really separate them to get them into the playoffs. If ETSU wins big on Saturday, Jay, we could be looking at a one-bit SOCON. I think that's very realistic given the circumstances right now. All right, very quickly, uh, give me your thoughts. Again, you're out there. You cover this extensively, not just Missouri Valley, Big Sky. Is it looking like at least five Missouri Valley and five Big Sky making the tournament? Big Sky safely five, and nobody on the bubble. Weber State's done. Um, nor, or the, the Missouri Valley, I think five are likely. I don't think South Dakota State is a mortal lock just yet, but I think it's unlikely that they get left out. Um, and, and it's going to come down to Northern Iowa. If they beat Western Illinois and they get help, including from the Buccaneers, they have a shot to get in as the 13th out of 13 at-large teams. All right, Keith, I appreciate it, man. Always a good time talking. Uh, good luck up there in Fargo, and I'll talk to you down the road, my friend. Have a great call on Saturday, bud. Go Bucks. Floor is yours, my friend. Go back and listen to minutes three through five of the podcast today, and I think you'll understand how I feel about it. Um, Keith is really good at what he does. He's a really good dude, and he – I love how you're softening this blow here. Tons and tons of time on this stuff, and he has lots of intelligent thoughts about lots of different things. And he's just so wildly off base on almost everything he just said. It's incredible. When he sent me a message and said, uh, he took a screenshot and sent it to me. I think he actually put it on Twitter later. But he says, I can't believe I'm writing 5-5 five and five Northern Iowa and breaking down their schedule to see if they can get in. And so, again, we – we do this a lot. We've done this a lot with basketball, mainly when we get to, again, because those conferences and the summit and all that, not very. They're never going to get two teams in, or at least right now, they're not in a situation to. But when the Southern Conference was trying to get two teams in the last several years, again, me and Keith break down stuff. So we've done a lot of legwork on some of this before. I think the big thing is, it's when the Southern Conference doesn't have a lot of ranked teams. They don't have teams that are in the playoffs and winning, the perception is. And like the perception of, well, ETSU can't beat anybody by more than seven points. Well, depending on how you look at that, right, if you're not in that league, and I tell this to SEC fans all the time, when a bottom SEC team wins, it's like, well, see, told you. I mean, just the 
the conference is so deep, so deep. Well, a Big Ten team upset one of the top teams. Well, they're garbage. I mean, obviously, they're the worst team in America. I mean, it's terrible. Or Big 12. Oh, my God. Like, it's amazing how you skew Everybody wants to play both sides. That's right. And Southern Conference basketball, right? When you get Citadel knocking off a team, right, then you're like, oh, I'm sure how good SoCon is. But then you hear Tennessee Tech accidentally beat somebody. like, oh, it's OVC. Awful. So it happens everywhere. Everyone has their biases. You don't watch everything all the time. I will just say that for Keith. But – Six and five, Northern Iowa. And I will say, this is a year where the bubble is not as big as it has been in years past. There are times in eight and three, I think Nichols got left out. I think they had eight FCS wins and got left out. I think Monmouth did too on your day. Yeah, so there are times where seven win teams, depending on what league you're in, yes, can be left out. Yes, if you don't really play anybody non conference. I, I get that. But generally, if you have seven good FCS wins, you are generally in for VMI, Cornell's not particularly great in the Ivy League, but Davidson's going to win the Pioneer, and people have kind of snubbed their nose at the Pioneer, but they are, unless Davidson loses to 2-7 and seven Drake, or 2-8 and eight Drake, whatever Drake is. So if they lose that game, they're not in, but if they win that game, as we assume they will, then they would have beaten a conference champion, whether it's Pioneer League or not. And then Chattanooga... By three think, touchdowns. Yes, and Chattanooga... Unfortunately, has if they could have that Austin P oh. back, I think that's more than any other game they want back because Mercer's battling for a championship. VMI is not an awful loss; they're still getting votes, top twenty-five. There are a couple national people that think VMI, and this is going to drive you crazy, Mike. Have them ranked higher than Chattanooga. Now, I think the committee, and I've not talked to anybody in the committee because Scott Carter won't talk to me about it, but I think they have Chattanooga ranked higher. And I would, if you have to pick one. I think Chattanooga would be the ten team that you would take. Ten times. There is no question. I appreciate that Keith took his time to talk about this because he probably knew he was going to get ripped by us after because he is living in a different world, uh, clearly has forgotten where he came from. That's a disappointing part to me. He doesn't have any love for the Southern <laughs> Conference. Even though he was here, I get people nationally that have never covered the league and never been here. He's been here. He knows that Southern Conference football now did he was not here when football ETSU restarted. have football mm-hmm. at that point, so he didn't cover he it as just, extensively. He had just let he had he was at um, uh, the, the IM, uh, IMG, Learfield IMG now, but he was in Winston Salem, uh, working the back end. I believe he was hired to do the Michigan pregame show. Still, though, he in has Arizona. the background of you don't need to rattle off his entire resume. I know you love him, but I mean, you know, it's not necessary. Uh, I know that he has that Southern Conference connection. And I know that he pays attention to this stuff. And so to just write off the SoCon as any anonymous national person would that has not been around and has connections to the conference and such, that was disappointing. But I do appreciate that we ran the interview, too, because we don't archive the coaches' show. So now we have this for people to go back and listen to in case they missed it last night, we're over on basketball or whatever, whatever. I will say this, too. I mean, he just had Brian McLaughlin, who we like and covers and does slant more Southern Conference than Sam Herter, who does not. And he had Sam was on – Jeff Colhane, who does the play-by-play for North Dakota State, who's on a different time slot than Keith. So he had access to the two guys that I rely on to get good FC. I don't always agree with all their takes, but I certainly – those are the two leading guys if you want to read a bunch of FCS articles and really get kind of in on the know to do. And so, again, he's taking what they have done and done his own information. So it's not just him kind of one-offing, but, again, the national – sort of thing, and even Brian McLaughlin, who is a little bit of a SoCon apologist sometimes for people, was a little down on getting multi-teams in after last week, and 
I think the crazy part is is three teams would have got in if Chattanooga would have beat Mercer and VMI would have beat Furman. I, I don't think there's any doubt that three teams would have gotten in at that particular time. And it's just crazy to me to drop and think that if things fell a certain way. And let's be honest, if you are, and I know people hate Kennesaw State, but if you want Chattanooga and VMI or Sun Conference to have representation, you need Kennesaw State to beat Monmouth. Because Monmouth would take away, they would get the at-large. Kennesaw would definitely take a bubble team slot away. Now, people on the bubble, and I talked about it with Keith, they want you know ETSU and Kennesaw to win because they're on the bubble, Northern Iowa, Chattanooga. Those teams need that to happen, VMI. If you want a seed, and Kennesaw, you know, and and there's South Dakota State's thinking they can still get a seed. Although South Dakota State is the craziest team on the list because some people think they're not even in. Some people think they could get a seed. I think they're going to be in because I know for a fact the committee waits. The FBS wins more than FCS, so they're going to get a half win or whatever percentage points on their calculations. And they did hand. Colorado State right now, their worst loss of the year. I think, I think those are worth something. So I think they are in. So that being said, I don't agree with everything. I think there's a still a shot of two. I think three is ludicrous. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't think – my only question is because if you're just putting teams together, do they eventually just look at head-to-head and go VMI's better? I think that would be crazy because watching both teams, I think Chattanooga's the better team. But if they break it down to like, hey, you know what? We're just letting one SOCON team in, guys. What do you want to do? And somebody in the room goes, well, I mean, do we not want to go head-to-head at some point? Like they had a playoff game. They played each other. VMI won. I don't know. I don't know that it's that simple and never works that way because, you know, the committee, I will give Keith this, they're not very transparent and there's no, like, FBS where, like, you get the – they did it one year and they got lambasted for it, so they're not doing it again. But they used to put out, hey, here's our top ten, here's our top whatever, here's our this. And I think they did in 2018, and then they not done it again because the committee did not like the scrutiny of that. Keith will live on his delusional Missouri Valley planet, and I will live on my delusional Southern Conference planet. We are both probably equally as delusional with our love for each of these conferences, and you can live on your, I can't believe I'm saying this, probably most rational planet of the three of us, where you're kind of I've sort never of been trying to understand from both sides. Uh, because I heard some of the stuff about NDSU, and, oh, I've been cheated by the committee and all this stuff, and I'm just like, oh. No more tone-deaf comment has ever been made about a dominant program that completely runs through all of the FCS every single year. I so want them to finish fourth. <laughs> if they finish fourth, and Sam Houston State's the one, Montana State, JMU are two and three. And North Coast State is four. I will I will try to get Keith back on. <laughs> I will want to hear what nuclear things were going on on by the what is it Bison sixteen sixty. Yes, I cannot wait for that. All right, let's talk a little uh, TSU basketball. Okay, I don't know. What we don't need a break. Just hit uh, any button. There we go. The Dossal Twins from Jace Anderson TV, in which I false started the broadcast three times because I couldn't figure out my mind. I think you said Freedom Hall, too, instead of Brooks. <laughs> well, I think when I did the first intro, and then they told me I wasn't on, and then they were like, okay, now you can go. And I did the second intro. And then I was just sitting there talking wildly, and I heard myself cut on and realized yeah, I was on. And then, yes, it was not good. <laughs> on top of the fact I got there, I think, a solid 11 minutes before I went on air, and that yeah. it, then I needed three minutes to put on the tie and the jacket. and 
I was there, I think, three minutes before the pregame show started because I was here trying it was to not, make sure it was not a good, It was not a good day for us to be prepared. Change anyway. everything and just technologically. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the first probably six minutes of that is not Emmy Award-winning stuff <laughs> on me. Let me just say that. I, I got better as it went, but the first six minutes were not uh, were not golden. That being said, just talk women's basketball real quick. Last night, Georgia Tech, number one, uh, I don't it's probably not PC, but those some big girls. I mean, they are tall, athletic, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, post players I've seen in a long time in person. I've seen certainly high-level women's basketball on TV and be like, man, those are you know, obviously tall, talented post players, but I've not been in a building with two 6'4", six, 6'5", six, ladies that were could do it all. The post-passing between the two, finishing around the rim, rebounding smart, not forcing the issue, just playing within themselves, dominant rebounding, even assist. I mean, the stat line field goals between them was ridiculous. They combined for like 19 rebounds, like seven assists, a couple block shots. I don't know what they missed, like five, six shots between I mean, it was ridiculous. They, they were – and it started off really for ETSU women's team – and, and this is what happens sometimes is you always hear that, well, you can't win a game in the first few minutes, but you can lose a game. And not that ETSU was out of it, but the 11 nothing spurt to start certainly wasn't ideal. And then you went to the end of the first quarter down 15. And they got – and if you really look at the rest of the game, it was an even game. But you, you can't take something out, right? You can't just say, well, guess what? We're only playing three quarters today. And the first quarter doesn't count. But they had a shot, got it to 11. The crowd got very loud quickly. They got a bucket, got the offensive foul, a motion from the crowd. ETSU went on a little spurt. It was 47-36. ETSU had a shot with the ball, didn't get it. Georgia Tech rattled off the last five to end the third quarter. I think they had the first two buckets. It was like a 9 nothing run, and then that, that was it. But ETSU had a legitimate shot down a post player to make some noise in that game. And I thought Simon Harrison, you know, I heard him with you post-game. You know, we're not into moral victories, all that. But, my goodness, I thought considering the start and they kept battling and certainly was outgunning the post, I mean, there was just no answer. And I don't know how many teams in the – and I don't know ACC women's basketball that in-depth, so I don't want to act like I do. But I would be shocked that there's two better post players in the ACC. Yeah, Kubai is – like a top 25 player nationally. ESPN ranked her number 20 in the individual rankings of players nationally before the season started, and her passing out of the post, that is what I was most impressed with. There's no question. You nailed it. The five assists, it seemed like she was setting everyone up in the post-to-post passing. Like, those two were just working in concert with each other beautifully, and she was fantastic. Hermosa was very good with the double-double. Part of the reason I think ETSU was able to get back in it in that third quarter was that Hermosa was really a non-factor. She had 13 first-half points and then was quiet there for a lot of the third quarter. And then she was able to get going a little bit more in the uh, latter stages of the third and then the fourth. But I think it was nice to see, just my big takeaway from this game, a team compete and fight after being down early, especially coming out of halftime, because that was something we consistently saw. And if you go back and listen throughout podcasts from the last couple of years, it's something that I ad nauseum discussed. The stats were there to support it. The beginning of the third quarter, sometimes the middle of the third quarter as well, it was really those first seven minutes of the third quarter, right out of halftime, ETSU just was never 
and when I say never, it really is almost never. Like, it was like three or four times in the span of 60-some games, almost never the better team. Like, 30 of the times they played the first seven minutes to a wash in the third quarter. And then the other, like, 26, 27 times, they were drastically worse. Like, they were outscored by six or more in those first seven minutes, like 28, 29, 30 times, something like that. It was it was incredible. And so to see the resolve out of the locker room, to hear the crowd and the support and how the Bucks fed off that, to see Carly Hooks and Jalen Roberts make a couple of nice moves on the right side of the court and really electrify the crowd with their individual brilliance there, um, to be within 11 with the number 18 team in the country. Now Georgia Tech's going through some things of their own. Loyal McQueen went to the transfer portal yesterday. Uh, so she is no longer on the roster after playing the first three games. Uh, Kira Fletcher is their second-leading scorer from last year. She hasn't played this year. So they're going through some stuff, too, but they're still the number 18 team in the country. They're still off to a perfect start. They still have an Olympic gold medalist head coach. I mean, everything was stacked against ETSU. And after that 11 nothing start, it was 33-13, to right? Like, you know, fold it up, right? It, it's over. Pack your bags. Go home. Georgia Tech won. But there was none of that from ETSU. And Coach Harris was proud of his team after and. I think there was good reason for that. Yes, there were only 12 field goals made, and that's obviously not a pretty stat to look at. But to force the action and in the third quarter get to the line, you know, control that second half in terms of being the aggressor, I think that was important because ETSU showed they were not intimidated. And that to me says there's buy-in, right? That to me says there's belief. And I think that that's maybe something that the Bucks lost the last couple of years. Yeah, and I think the the big question mark is still consistency scoring. Yes. Out of all the things, the you know I don't fault really a lot of the effort last several years. I don't fault the effort so far this year. It just seems like there's been different ladies that have stepped up to score. There's just not been one or two where you look and go, you know what? They're getting me twelve, fifteen a night. It just it just not happening. Last year, right, no double figure scores. Right. You know, and and you can look and you can say, well, okay, we've had a lot of different leading scores early on, whatever. But still, it's like, hey, at some point, really need to get somebody to step up, and really preferably two people to at least step up and say, hey, I'm going to get you this, and I'm going to get you this, and then the rest of the team can figure out who's on and who's off the rest of the day. But I, it's still the main concern is the lack of consistency scoring. And I'll say this, Jayla double digits all four games, so she's really the most consistent player right now. Ja'Kai didn't play that first game. Outside of that, she has been relatively consistent. She is instant offense, I'll give you that. And she's only been able to play, unfortunately, like 15 to 20 minutes a game. If you could extend that to 25 and be out there, because she's averaging like three-quarters of a point per minute, which is a really great ratio. Demaya Griffin, that being your third, has been very inconsistent. 13 points game one, none game two. 13 against Cornell... But then, what, one of eight from the floor yesterday? And, and her shot honestly looks great. It does. It's it unbelievable. Does. And it'll help when Jameer Houston's back, too. That will certainly help. So there's a there's a lot. I, I think they need two consistent day in and day out. Maybe if Chicago plays more, she becomes the, the second one. But it seems to be sporadic. I know they're trying to get her into the new system, which is a little bit more up and down and some other things. But Jakaya and, – and honestly, I was encouraged – that Burdick was able to hit, like, some 15-footers. Now, I don't know. I'm sure she can shoot threes, and she was over um, last night. But I think if she can hit a few 15-footers, Ja'Kai Davis can hit some of those 
to sort of stretch the defense. I think that changes things offensively. And to be honest, you know, I'll be curious to see the next few weeks how the team kind of develops still a little bit more. It's early. And I know we're going to talk about men's basketball in just a second, but how they kind of still fit into the pieces and learning and going and executing everything. And Coach Harris and his staff that have not been together, right, how are they piecing and things together? And I think the men's and women's basketball teams are very eerily similar in some of my thoughts on their team. Let's talk men's basketball. I was surprised to find that USC Upstate, just previewing tonight's game, had won five in a row in this series. Now, you'll remember this much better than I did, do. Uh, I looked back at the years, and I saw it was the end of the Bartow era. Things started to make a little bit more sense, right? And the Spartans actually had some pretty solid teams. Like, I don't ever remember USC Upstate outside of softball being good at much of anything, but... And they had a pro. And, I mean, they won, like, 20-plus games a couple of those years, too. So it's certainly much different than things now, though. Uh, Fourth-year Dave Dickerson, um, talked with him yesterday. Things just haven't worked out. He really liked where his team was going into that COVID year, and a variety of things I'll talk about in the broadcast tonight, not to belabor anything now, but tonight I will, um, had just kind of stopped him in their tracks. You know, five wins last year. Um, winless non-conference, and you can hear in his voice when you talk to him over the last year that he really regrets how things have gone because he thought that the program had been turned around. They had those good years and you know the early mid 2010s, and then kind of fell off. Dickerson came in, and he thought that things were working. And then you have COVID, you have a bad season, you have the one-time transfer rule, and kids just kind of scattered. Tommy Bruner went to Jacksonville, um, Everett Hammond to UMass Lowell, Nevin Zink to Boston. That was three of their top four scorers from last year, and those aren't particularly named programs that they went to. Um, They do have some shooters, and I think that makes tonight a little bit dangerous. Uh, Bryson Mazzone, was uh, he going to be able to take strides after scoring nine points per game last year and the year before, playing a role the last couple of years? He was going to have to do more, and he's been excellent. 19 per game, 42% from three. He's a career 38% three-point shooter. Dalvin White, their leading returning scorer, he's 6 of 10 from three. Jordan Ganey, an impact freshman, averaging in double figures. He's 5 of 9 from three. 41% from three as a team. Projected bottom of the Big South. I think the path for USC Upstate to stay in this game tonight, because I do think ETSU is, I've seen a couple of things where they're a heavy favorite. Um, I believe that they are the more talented team and should be heavily favored. They're going to have to continue to shoot it well, USC Upstate. But the question is, is that enough? They haven't improved defensively in the time of Coach Dickerson there. They've averaged like 74.5 per game each of the three years um, on the defensive end. And, and that's just not good enough. So even if they can shoot it well, are they going to be able to contain ETSU's offense enough? I think they're going to have to shoot it well the experience factor heavily favors ETSU. If you just look at the age and number of college basketball years and I think the physicality of ETSU, I think ETSU, similar to what I was saying about the women, I think the consistency, I think they need, I mean, they've got enough scores that can score, but right now they just haven't had anybody consistent score. I'm worried about Ty Brewer and his thumb. He missed that exhibition game. He's played a couple of games, App State, Tennessee, and just hasn't looked right. And I'm not trying to make an excuse because I don't really know. I'm not talking to Ty, but it does seem like he's having a hard time with the thumb. And it's on the shooting hand. It's not the thumb on the offhand, but catch the thumb, shoot. I think certainly that's 
something to be a part of. So kind of curious if they can get Ty Brewer going. Kind of curious which David Sloan and Jordan King you're going to get tonight. I think we know kind of what Ladarius Brewer you're going to get. And then the post play. This could be a situation where they could get a decade or Weber or Seymour or Brewer or somebody, Ty Brewer, to have a little bit of a presence in the post. And I would be surprised if they don't run some sets for Ladarius Brewer to catch the ball on the block because I think he's just very tough to guard down there. And I would like to see him, as the season progresses, take advantage of him being able to either elevate up over people and sort of do that one dribble, sort of a step back fade away from about eight feet he's got, or to be able just to attack the rim from right there and just turn around, nice little jump hook or something. So uh, I'll be curious to see how each issue does offensively. Defensively, I think it's just a matter of just not giving up a lot of threes and letting Upstate go bonkers out there. I think that would be similar to what you're saying. I think Upstate's best chance is to go bonkers and shoot the ball well. I think ETSU, for me, I want to see them get consistent scoring. And honestly, they've had two tough road games. It would be nice for them to get in front of a home crowd, get some energy, and and get a win, Oliver's first win, and and kind of change the momentum. Exactly where I was going next. How important do you think this one is, knowing that you're 0-2, have a trip to Naples coming up against a really strong mid-major field if you somehow drop this one, and then you go into a three-game set early next week where you've got some quality opponents, um, I think – more than a few people around Buck Nation would be clawing at their collars. I, mean, I think I talked about that last show just about, hey, before we jump off the, the bridge here, this is eerily similar to sort of the start of last year, and last year's team was pretty good. Right. And, and they had wins taken away because they weren't able to play some of the last-place teams in the league, two against Sanford that we know were going to be chalked up. So um, I think they're still in the same boat as long as they win this one. Now, if they lose this one, let's see how they lose, and then we can talk about it from there. But I don't foresee that. I think ETSU will pick up a win. They'll be one and two. Hopefully it's, you know, 15, 20-point-plus game, and then, you know, we'll start talking about the trip down in Naples. Well, yeah, you said eerily similar to the women and the men. I think that this reminds me of the women's third game against Cornell, right, because then you got Georgia Tech coming in, and then you got to go on the road for three games. And so you needed that one against Cornell, I think, much like ETSU needs this one on the men's side against USC Upstate with a tough stretch coming up. All right, 6.30, pregame show, 7 o'clock tip tonight as we record this on Thursday. And, of course, football Saturday, 11.30 a.m., 1 o'clock kick. Now it's time for our favorite segment. Your favorite segment. Dag on right. Shelly O'Johnny. Who's going to win AL MVP and Vegas League? A lot of money. And hit. Mark it down. Plus 10 area. Hit a buck 20 max. Or 10 MVP. There's not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. I'll defer to you for the first one. What do you got? Well, firstly, are we frauds for waiting until both seasons 
are underway to make our long-term bold predictions on basketball. Okay, I, I tried to stay away from any low-hanging fruit, right? So looked at the numbers, looked at the starts, and said, I'm going to still try and make predictions that I think some would look at after the start of the season a week in and say, well, look how that player has done so far. Case in point, Ladarius Brewer will become the eighth Buccaneer to average 20 or more points per game in a season. He's averaging just 12 right now. Slow start. I think two, you said. two games, and, and, two and, games. and in fairness, he played two pretty good defensive teams. No doubt. But I think you'd look before the season and say, I think that's attainable. You look right now through two games and you say, ooh, that might be tough. But it'll happen. He could easily throw a couple 25ers on the board and, and get that average up. So. He definitely will. I'm going to go um, Mohab Yasser. All right. Or Mohab, I'm sorry. Mohab. Sorry. I'm getting used to that because the whole staff called him Mohab, and then we asked him to say his name, and it's Mohab. But I'm going to go with Yasser is going to be the freshman of the year. Wow. In the Southern Conference. Slow start for him, too. It is a slow start. I was going to go all-freshman team, but I think that's probably going to be – I'm going to say a lock for that. Wow. That's how confident I am, or maybe I'll just say that. But uh, I don't think you'll let me back right now. I know it. I know it. Should have went there first. I've got one more men's and then two women's. Uh, the Bucks set their single game three point record last season against VMI was sixteen. They will break that again this season. Hmm. I am going to go. David Sloan will be the best assist to turnover ratio guy in the league. I like that. I like that. He's going to pass my guy, Alex, Alex Hunter. Hunter. Mm, yeah. Alex has had a stranglehold. Furman over looks strong now too. They do look very strong. At they, uh, right now, Furman and the Citadel half-game lead in the ACC over Steve Forbes. Go. Wow. He did not like that text, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure he'll like I even can, less one now. Well, he called me, and the first three words out of his mouth were, were, were not arable, so if that tells you how he felt about that. ETSU women's basketball had zero players average in double digits in scoring last year. They will have three this season. I'm not going to say which three, but they will have three, and uh, you probably know which three I would go with at this moment, but... Zero to three, I think, is quite the jump, and I think it's possible. I think Jayla Roberts is already locked in for double digits. I mean, she scored 24 against Cornell. Double digits each of the first four. But those other two that I have in mind, Griffin and Davis, and then maybe even Jameer Houston uh, when she comes back, I think there's some real possibilities there. Once the system gets rolling up and down the court, a lot of points scored, some double-digit scores, going to be foul. Okay, so for women's basketball, I thought I would go a team win first. And ETSU the last five, six years have struggled on the road. Yes. Okay. So I am going to go, there will be 500 or better on the road this year. I like that. They've struggled with Mike Gallagher as the broadcaster, 24 and 60 since taking over on play-by-play. Yeah, I've tried to get Keith Bragg back. but yeah. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> It's been since the 2018-19 season since the Bucs have won back-to-back Division One games. Now, they had that chance last night, and hey, they had the ball down 11. I was going to say, this is an excellent way to break that streak. I mean, very noteworthy, massive upset. That would have been their first ranked win in almost 40 years. Unfortunately, it didn't go down. Now, I'm not just going to say they went back-to-back. I'm going to say at some point they win three straight Division One games this season, which, considering last year they won four games overall, Jay Sandoz, would be quite the progress. Uh, yes, yeah, say that one more time. I want to make sure I heard that correctly. Bucks have not won back-to-back Division yep. One games since the 2018-19 season. Right. And I heard the 40-year ranked game. Yep, yep. Right after that. So they're going to win 
three straight this year. Three straight. At some okay. point. Okay. That's they won I four all last year, and they have won 24 games with me as a broadcaster over the three-plus years I've been doing this. Total. 24 total. With me as a broadcaster. ETSU will land a first-teamer on the All-Southern Conference team. Okay. I'll give it to you. I don't know how bold it is, but I'll give it to you. Jayla looks like they had none on the preseason. Yeah, they weren't even in the top ten. Well, they also got a first place vote in the preseason. Well, and that, bless the that, person that did that. Yes, I, <laughs> thank goodness that guy doesn't vote on it. Um, but, and if ETSU does get somebody in the uh, postseason all conference team, that means they have won some games. Because let's no, be no, honest, if you're in the bottom of the league, you're not going to be in there. That's true. Okay, there we go. All right, long-term bold predictions. Uh, we will come back Monday. I'll be in Naples. We'll, uh, you know, I'll be sitting on a mata. Yeah. We'll, we'll figure will it out. Okay. I don't know. Sounded good. I don't even know what that is. I mean, I don't yeah, I was gonna say. I don't, I don't even know what's in that. I have no idea what's in that. I think it has an umbrella. Does that count? Uh, is, no. that, is that that the no, green? The garnish does not count. All right, Saturday championship football starts at one on the Buccaneers Sports Network. <laughs>